Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Here's what I'm envisioning, okay? So you have this packet of uh, sources in front of you. Uh, It's about nine pages long, uh, which means that we are not likely to get through all of it this morning. Um, I I, I compile, believe it or not, this is a whittled down version. Uh, The Jewish tradition has a lot to say on the topic that we're going to talk about, which is indicative of what it says about the topic. So uh, we'll 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 get there in in a second. So there's a lot to say about it. We may not get to all these texts, so you're, you should feel free to take this home with you and review things that we didn't get to. There might be things that, in order to cover uh, breadth, we might, uh, we might not go in depth on some of these texts. We might, we might end up getting to all of them, but not going into all of them in depth. So um, just want to sort of lay that out uh, off the bat. Don't get intimidated or nervous uh, about uh, about this. Don't get intimidated by the length and don't get nervous that we're not going to uh, get it or that we're going to keep you here forever in order to finish it. Um, that's not my intention. My intention is to get through however much we get through and uh, we can uh, decide if we want to continue the conversation somehow or if you want to continue the conversation, uh, etc. cetera. Um, so that's number one. Number two uh, is... I actually forgot what number two. Oh yeah, number two. <laughs> number two is my intention is uh, um, to do a little bit of presentation, uh, and then to take some time for uh, questions and conversation uh, toward the end. Uh, but you can feel free to interrupt uh, the presentation with any questions that you have, any comments that you have, any points or clarification, any questions you want to present to everybody. Um, I can be kind of loosey-goosey about it. I don't have a very rigid uh, structure to follow. Uh, so feel free to have some give and take, okay? This, is, uh, this doesn't need to be a, a monologue until the end. Um, all right, everybody cool? I titled the session, My Father Was a Wandering Aramean, Immigration and Judaism, uh, in part because uh, I think that that passage, that phrase, which we'll look at from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, uh, gives a, a strong indication of what, where the Jewish tradition stands and how it views the issue of immigration, uh, is that uh, it views it as a central part of our history and our own people's story. Uh, but I also chose it because I think it's a worthy topic uh, to consider leading up to Passover. And if you're familiar with the traditional liturgy of the Passover Seder, the traditional Haggadah, uh, this passage, uh, my father was a wandering Aramean, or the Hebrew Arami Oved Avi, uh, is, uh, is a, a central part of the Haggadah. So uh, if just to kind of like take that out for a second... The Haggadah is the liturgy of the Passover Seder. The most important part of the Haggadah is the section known as Magid, 
which is the same Hebrew root, right? Haggadah is uh, the telling of the story, and Magid means the part where we tell the story of the Exodus. But instead of telling the story of the Exodus in a kind of linear fashion, which you might expect, you know, as if it were a story, um, the um, the section of Magid actually does it in a really kind of unique pedagogic way. It uh, it presents. Uh, questions and answers about those questions. So, you know, with the most famous of which is the, is the four questions, but you also have the four children, uh, who ask different questions about the story of Passover. And then it has, uh, the, the largest unit, single unit in that section of Magid is a, a, an extended text study on a midrash from uh, from the Mechilta, uh, from, uh, an, uh, a very early rabbinic commentary on, uh, on the, on the Bible, excuse me, on, uh, from the Sifra, I should say, um, an early rabbinic commentary on the Bible that gives a step-by-step, uh, interpretation, a line-by-line interpretation of the passage from Deuteronomy that, uh, you have, uh, is the, your first text here, right? And that's the passage that starts Arami Oved Avi. Okay, now I titled this, My Father is a Wandering Aramean which is one way to translate that phrase, Arami Ovedavi. If you look at the Haggadah, it typically translates it in a different way, which uh, it, it translates it usually as an Aramean sought to oppress my father. Okay, so the Hebrew phrase Arami Ovedavi is actually a, a kind of opaque phrase, or uh, the uh, language of the Midrash is Tse'umad uh, Mabikesh of Lavan Ha'arami Lasot Le'avi. Right, so uh, go and go forth and learn what Laban the Aramean sought to do to my father. Okay, that's based on a, a passage in um, in the book of Genesis where Lavan, who is uh, Jacob's uh, father-in-law, the patriarch Jacob's father-in-law, uh, his mother's brother, uh, he goes to live with Lavan and uh, and then. Uh, uh, wants to marry his daughter Rachel, and there's the whole thing about marrying Leah, and you know all that sort of stuff, right? And so the the uh, and so in a passage in Genesis, it calls Lavan Lavan Ha'arami, Lavan the Aramean. Uh, so the midrash picks up on that issue and uh, and and uh, presents the story, the narrative of uh, the history of the Jewish people through the prism of Jacob being oppressed by Lavan the Aramean. Uh, that's only one way of understanding that passage, and indeed we'll see in just a moment that uh, many other commentators uh, understand Arami Overavi not as an Aramean sought to oppress my father, but as my father was a wandering Aramean. What I actually want to suggest is that both lead us in exactly the same direction. Um, so whether you want to look at the Haggadah's uh, version of it and say an Aramean sought to oppress my father, or you want to look at the other commentators' versions and say that my father was a wandering Aramean, actually the force of it is the same thing. Because the context in which an Aramean sought to oppress my father is in the context of immigration, is in the context of Jacob being a foreign sojourner in a land not his. Right? And so there's a story of oppression as an immigrant uh, in a foreign land, right? which is a similar story to... Uh, my father was a wandering Aramean. Uh, the the story of uh, of perpetual immigration, perpetual wandering of the patriarchs, um, is also a story of of uh, of, of uh, foreignness and strife and oppression and having to move from place to place because of that. 
Okay, so I actually think that there's not a huge amount of difference between those two understandings of the passage. Um, they just spin the story in slightly different ways for different purposes. So let's just look at that first passage from Deuteronomy chapter 26. Uh, this comes actually not in a Passover part of the narrative, uh, but in uh, a, a narrative uh, or a set of laws known as the, the, the ritual of the Bikurim, the first fruits. Uh, so when you come into the land of Israel and you plant crops uh, and uh, the crops yield their first harvest, you're supposed to uh, bring that first harvest to the temple in, a, in the ceremony. When you get to the temple, um, uh, the priest that you give the first crops to, the Bikurim to, the priest leads the worshiper in the following declaration. Uh, now Bikurim is, a, is a, a ritual associated more with Shavuot, the, uh, the Pentecost holiday, which is after Passover. Um, but nevertheless, this is a, a major part of the liturgy of the Passover Seder. Um, so the priest leads the worshiper in the following declaration. You shall then recite as follows before the Lord your God. And for the most part, I'm going to stick with the English of these texts just in the interest of time. <clears throat> you shall then recite as follows before the Lord your God. My father was a fugitive Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. But there he became a great and very populous nation. One thing I want you to pay attention to in the Hebrew, or in the English rather, is the term sojourned. In the Hebrew, that is the root gimel resh, ger, gur, lagur. Okay, so typically uh, in modern Hebrew, uh, ger is usually used in what context? Anybody know? Some... In modern Hebrew, yeah. Is a convert exactly okay? So when you say somebody converted to Judaism, right? It's a it's a gershonit gayer, a convert who seeks to convert. Uh, Rabbi Shai Held, who's uh, uh, Rebecca knows him well, um, a, a great teacher uh, at Machon Hadar in New York, uh, uh, led a very uh, taught a very convincing uh, session uh, that actually is very. Um, uh, a very simple argument and a very obvious argument uh, that ger biblically does not and cannot mean convert. Okay, um, so uh, so uh, we'll see in just a moment, right? Uh, that, that we have this passage that comes up over and over again. Ki gerim haitem mitzrayim because you were gerim in the land of Egypt. Okay, it wouldn't make sense if the word was because you were converts in the land of Egypt. Okay, so, um, so ger here, ger biblically means a foreign sojourner. Right? In other words, somebody who comes from another country and another ethnic background to live uh, permanently in a foreign place, right? So in this case, right, um, he went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there, right? So uh, a, uh, uh, my, my father was an Arab man, not an Egyptian, he went down to Egypt and was an immigrant there, basically, right? He immigrated there. He lived there for a long period of time, right? Um, and lest you think that in the story, you know, we're talking about, okay, he's like temporarily just, you know, kind of hanging out there, right? The Jews reportedly, uh, or the, the, the Jews, the Israelites reportedly lived in Egypt for something like 400 years before the Exodus, Okay, so this isn't just like a, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm having a sabbatical in Paris, right? A sojourning is actually a, a, 
not a temporary state. It's a, it's a permanent state, right? You are living there indefinitely, okay? So that's a sojourner. So that's, that's the term ger, okay? So my, he went down to Egypt, meager numbers in sojourn there, but there he became a great and very populous nation. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. The Lord freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, and awesome power, and by signs and portents. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. All right, so before I even get to the commentary on this, there are a few things I think are worth pointing out here. The first is that this text understands the arc of Jewish history and the thrust of the Jewish narrative as fundamentally an immigrant story. Okay, We were, uh, we were migrants uh, traveling from Aram. We ended up living in Egypt, which is a land not ours. It was a story of, of oppression as immigrants, right? So as an immigrant population living in Egypt, we were oppressed. We cried to God. God stood on the side of the oppression of the vulnerable and redeemed us from that situation and brought us to a new land. But by the way, that land was not ours to begin with, right? So we were also immigrants in that land too, right? We were foreigners who went to go live in this foreign land. Right, so lest you think that the restoration of uh, of the of the uh, children of Israel to the land of Israel is a is 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 a restoration of uh, of of uh, ethnically native, uh, what do you want to call it, um, Levantians uh, to uh, that plot of land. Right, this text shatters that mythology. Right, I mean, the, all the Torah shatters that mythology because Abraham. Uh, himself, who is promised the land of Israel by God, uh, is uh, is not native to that land, right? He comes from Mesopotamia, right? So our whole story, even in our quote-unquote homeland, is an immigrant story, right? We are not native to that land. Okay. So Rashbam, who is the uh, grandson of the famous biblical commentator Rashi, uh, Rashi, by the way, I don't quote here because Rashi actually interprets this passage the same way the Haggadah interprets the passage. So Rashi interprets the passage as, uh, 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 see what Levan the Aramean sought to do to my father. So the Aramean oppressed my father. Rashbam reads it differently. He disagrees with his grandfather. He says, uh, as if the Torah had written, my father Avraham. So according to Rashbam, the Aramean in this passage is Abraham. Okay. Abraham is an Aramean, lost and exiled from his birthplace, Aram. God had told him in Genesis 12:1, go forth for yourself from your homeland, etc. Later on, Abraham himself relates to Avimelech, the king of the Philistines, a text that we, um, did I bring that text? I did not, okay, good. All right, so don't worry about that text. But that, so Abraham, in several instances, and we'll see at least one of them in a moment, in several instances, not only is an immigrant from Mesopotamia, from Aram to the land of Canaan, but once he comes to Canaan, he doesn't stay there. And he becomes an immigrant in the land of Egypt and then goes back to Canaan. Then he becomes an immigrant in the land of the Philistines, goes back to Canaan. So, by the way, this the, just sort of as an aside to this, Philistines is an anachronism in Abraham's time, but that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> later, later on, Abraham himself relates to Avimelech. I'll actually comment on that for a second, okay? So I, I'm not bringing these texts because I think that they are um, a, 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 
a factually accurate depiction of Jewish history. Okay? I bring them because they are uh, central to Jewish self-understanding and the mythology of the Torah is meant both to understand, to have a sense of identity, right? So it's not saying this is actually what happened to you, but this is how you should understand what happened to you. And also uh, it comes to kind of shape our worldview. This is how we, our history teaches us how we live today, it teaches us how we operate as a community and how we relate to each other and to the rest of the world. So, right, so none of this is because, you know, this is exactly how it happened, right? All of this is brought exclusively to teach us how we should relate to our reality. Okay, so later on, Abraham himself relates to Avimelech, king of the Philistines, that God had made him wander away from his father's house, etc. The meaning of the word Oved here, right, so remember in the Haggadah, it reads Oved as oppress. Here he's reading it as similar to To'eh, the root Abraham used to describe wandering without specific objective, almost like walking because one is lost. The word occurs clearly in that sense in Psalms 119, 176-Oved I have strayed like a lost sheep, search for your servant. We also find the word uh, in, in this connotation in Jeremiah 50, chapter 50, verse 6, Ami Roehem Hataum. My people were lost sheep, their shepherd led them astray. In other words, the recital by the farmer the farmer being the person who brings the first fruits to the temple in this first fruits ritual. The recital by the farmer goes back to the Jewish people's origin. The farmer saying, our forefathers came to this land from an alien country, and now God has given it to us. Okay, so, so Rashbam encapsulates uh, not only his understanding of what the meaning of the passage is, but also why we say it. Okay, we say it, because uh, when we bring the first fruits to the temple, we're reminding ourselves that we were not native to this land. Now we own this land. Now it's our property. Now we, uh, now, now we can live here and are sovereign here. But that wasn't always the case. So in part, we offer this prayer out of a, an expression of gratitude for God. Um, I think that there's also another dimension of it, which is uh, a sense of, uh, of, of humility and place, right? So we recognize in this, and we'll see this a little bit later in some of the texts that we're going to look at, um, that, uh, that we read a passage like this and we re-encounter the history so as to remember that the land in which we live doesn't actually belong to us, right? God is letting us use it, right? But it's not ours, right? And in fact, According to, actually, we can just skip ahead to, to the um, to text. Maybe we'll come back to it a little bit later. Um, look at, uh, on page 5, text number 18. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23. This is uh, the, a passage from the laws of the Jubilee year, which is the, um, the uh, agricultural system is broken up into seven-year cycles. Every seventh year is a sabbatical year. You're supposed to let the land lie fallow. And then you have seven cycles of seven sabbatical years. And then on the 50th year of those cycles uh, is what's known as the Yovel or the Jubilee, uh, in which not only you let the land lie fallow, but also 
every person reverts back to their ancestral homeland. In other words, if during the course of 50 years you've acquired property, you have to give it up and move back to where you, uh, your ancestors lived when they first came into the land of Israel. Okay, that's sort of on one foot of it. Everybody with me about that? There's, I see some confused looks. It's, it's, it's a, we, we can get into the like, like craziness, amazingness of that system uh, uh, if you want later, but but here's what it says about it, okay? And this is the, the function of it, I think, right? Um, but the land must not be sold beyond reclaim. In other words, you can't sell your land in perpetuity. You can't say, I'm giving you the deed to this property and it's going to be yours forever. I mean, you could say that, but it has no legal function because legally, at the end of the 50-year cycle, that land is going back to its original owner. Okay? The land must not be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine. You are but strangers resident with me. The Hebrew says, because you are sojourners and residents with me. Okay? In other words, you can't sell the land beyond reclaim because it doesn't belong to you. I'm giving it to you. I'm letting you use it. Have fun. Right? But it's not yours. You are immigrants here. You are sojourners with me here. Okay? So I think that that's also the function of this uh, Deuteronomic law about the, uh, about the uh, first fruits ritual, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a reminder of that same premise, right? That, uh, that we have this land by virtue of the fact that God is letting us live on this land and we get to enjoy the bounty of it for that reason. Um, okay, so I, I brought the passage from, uh, from the book of Genesis, uh, uh, the first call to Abraham, just to uh, reinforce what Rashbam is saying here. Rashbam reads this text as talking about Abraham. I actually think that because the, the, the term Aramia Overavi, as I mentioned before, is um, sufficiently unclear that it could plausibly be talking about uh, uh, any of the patriarchs. Uh, so there's a school of thought in biblical criticism um, that, uh, that there may not have been three patriarchs, one the parent of the other, um, that these may have been distinct patriarch stories uh, from different groups of Israelites that got woven together into one master narrative with Abraham being the father of Isaac and Isaac being the father of Jacob, uh, it, in which case, which, which helps explain why there's so much repetition in the stories of those patriarchs, right? So um, Abraham goes and lives with the king of the Philistines. <clears throat> Isaac goes and lives with the same king of the Philistines. Abraham, when he goes and lives with the king of the Philistines and the king of Egypt, portrays his wife Sarah as his sister, right? Um, when Isaac does the same thing, he portrays Rebekah as his sister. Uh, Jacob uh, goes down to Egypt to escape a famine. Abraham goes down to Egypt to escape a famine. Right, so there's a lot of repetition in those stories. There's different ways you could view the repetition. It's just, you know, history repeats itself. Right, that's fine. Right, another possibility is that they're actually the same stories, just uh, told, you know, that the Benjaminites uh, understood their their ancient ancestors being Jacob, and the Judites understood their ancient ancestors being Abraham. I'm just making that up off the top of my head, right? And, over the, and, and when the Torah got compiled together, um, it said, you're all right. They were all our ancestors, and we all put them together. So my, my point in that is saying that, uh, that this, the Deuteronomy might be 
deliberately being vague here about who my father was that was a wandering Aramean or who an Aramean oppressed, because it might have been Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all at the same time. Okay, it might have been all of them. So I'm going to show you that in a, in a, in a moment. Um, actually, here, go to page two, uh, text number five. Uh, Shadal, another medieval commentator, uh, in his commentary to the passage from Deuteronomy says, My father, the text includes all of the patriarchs as one, since they all wandered from nation to nation. And the first came from Aram. And this interpretation is similar to the words of Rashbam. In other words, right, so th this is the story of all the patriarchs. And so I have uh, uh, in uh, um, text number four is the story of Abraham uh, going down to Egypt, right? So look at verse 10. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, right? Lagursham, right? Basically, to live there indefinitely because there was no food in the place where he was living, right? So he doesn't know how long he's going to be living there for. He might be living there forever because there might be perpetual famine in the land that he uh, comes from. Or he might move down there and he might find that he really likes living in Egypt or that God tells him, you know what, I changed my mind. You're going to live in Egypt now, right? Could very well happen. So, uh, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. Um, and then we have a story of, uh, of, uh, of well, I'll just read on the, the rest of the story. So, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. If the Egyptians see you and think she is my wife, they will kill me and let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may remain alive thanks to you. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw how very beautiful the woman was. Pharaoh's courtiers saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's palace. And because of her, it went well with Abram. He acquired sheep, oxen, asses, male and female slaves, she-asses, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household with mighty plagues on account of Sarai, the wife of Abram. Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say to me, She is my sister, so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh put men in charge of him, and they sent him off with his wife and all that she possessed. Okay, so I think that this text actually, in addition to pointing out uh, Abraham's uh, immigration, uh, his role as an immigrant uh, in, in the narrative, uh, also shows a, a couple of other things about both the immigrant experience and uh, the biblical uh, moral point of view on the immigrant experience. So the first is that um, uh, an immigrant is a vulnerable person, right? When you move from one place to another, you move to a foreign culture, um, you are subject to the uh, whims and the laws of the people who are in power, right? Typically, people who immigrate to another country are, are vulnerable people, right? So here, you have a, a, a sign of that vulnerability. Uh, Abraham says, they're going to kill me and take you if you, they think you're my wife, right? So better, they're gonna, if they're going to take you anyway, they might as well think that you're my sister so they let me live. Okay? So that's another aspect of, of this, is that uh, part of the uh, immigrant experience um, is having to make accommodation to the surrounding culture, right? having to integrate in some way into the surrounding culture. Right? So that's part of Abraham's story uh, here too. But the important, one of the important things about the story is, um, is God's perspective. Right? This isn't, I think, only because uh, 
Abraham is who Abraham is, and we'll see this later on uh, uh, in the experience of the of the um, uh, Israelites and the children of Israel who are, who are in Egypt. Um, God's uh, God's response to the oppression of uh, this immigrant family is to uh, send mighty plagues uh, upon Pharaoh. Right, so Pharaoh changes his ways because of God's response, right? And so that actually happens in, as a recurring theme in, uh, in the biblical narrative, or at least theoretically, or supposed to happen as a recurring theme in the biblical narrative, um, that uh, 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 immigrants are vulnerable, they are uh, oppressed by the surrounding culture, by the, by the powerful and the privileged in, in the culture. God is on the side of the vulnerable um, uh, uh, as opposed to the powerful. God sends retribution in order to alleviate the situation of the vulnerable. Okay, so that happens, of course, in the Passover story, right? That's the obvious one, and I don't think I even brought that. Um, it also happens... Uh, um, and I brought a piece of this text, but I didn't bring the full text. So in, in uh, Parashat Mishpatim, which is the Torah portion uh, after the giving of the Ten Commandments uh, that lays out uh, a more comprehensive set of laws for Israelite society, offers uh, the following law on page um, four. <clears throat> you shall not, uh, num- uh, text 13, you shall not wrong a stranger Okay, the ger lotone. Okay, ger here also, right? Here, it's, I, the, the English, this is my translation. This is uh, the Jewish Publication Society translation. Translates ger as stranger. Okay, but stranger, it means a sojourner. It means an, an immigrant. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Okay? Now, the, the, uh, um, in uh, chapter... Uh, 23, it reiterates that law and says, uh, you should also not oppress a widow and orphan. And then it says, because if you do, if you oppress a stranger, a widow, or an orphan, I will send destructive plagues upon you, uh, and I will make your children orphans and your wives widows, and I will make you strangers. Right? So in other words, it's, a, it's an encapsulation into law of God's perspective on the subjugation, the oppression of the vulnerable. Okay? God is on the side of the vulnerable against the powerful. In the case of Abraham and Pharaoh, in the case of the Israelites, right, um, God is on the side of the uh, vulnerable sojourner against the dominant, established, native people who, uh, who, who um, uh, take advantage of them in in various ways. All right, let's look at um, number two. Uh, sorry, uh, page two, uh, text number six. Okay, now we have Isaac. Okay, uh, there was a famine in the land, aside from the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. Okay, so in other words, this is a recurring story. So I didn't bring you the one about Abraham, except for the Egypt one. And Isaac went to live, uh, went to Avimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I point out to you. Reside in this land and I will be with you and bless you. I will sign all these lands to you and to your heirs, fulfilling the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. 
I will make your heirs as numerous as the stars of heaven and assign to your heirs all these lands so that all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your heirs. Inasmuch as Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my laws, and my teachings, so Isaac stayed in Gerar. Okay, so Isaac's story, similar to Abraham's, right? Uh, a famine forces him out of the, uh, out of the, in Isaac's case, his native land, and forces him to go live in a foreign land indefinitely to sojourn there. Okay, then Jacob. Okay, Jacob is a, is a native Canaanite. Okay, he uh, is uh, uh, born to Isaac and Rebekah in the land of Israel. It's not the land of Israel yet because it's not the land of Israel until after Jacob becomes named Israel, right? You got that? Okay. Um, but, uh, but because of uh, the, the uh, stealing of the birthright and uh, his brothers uh, vowed to uh, kill him, uh, after his father dies, uh, he runs away from home. Uh, Jacob left Beersheba, Beersheba, and he set out for Haran. So in other words, he, he, he goes back to where his grandfather was from. It was the same as if I were now to move to Poland. Okay, So, I mean, that, it's not as if I would be welcomed back into Poland as a native son. Right? Um, Okay, I cut out a good portion of the story because we don't need the whole thing about the ladder and the angels and whatever, right? Um, uh, Jacob resumed his journey and came to the land of the Easterners. <clears throat> so in other words, Jacob ends up in the foreign land that he's going to. He ends up living there for quite some time. He ends up uh, living there for 20-something years, raising a family. In other words, this is, this is um, an indefinite stay in a foreign land. It's always Jacob's intention. One day I'll hopefully come back to the land of Israel. God promises to me, but he has no knowledge that for sure that that's going to happen, right? He only ends up leaving Haran when he does uh, because the situation with his father-in-law is bad. So he goes back to the land of Canaan. Um, so here's a text that I love uh, that, uh, so now, we're, so okay, first we, we have uh, a, a sense that the immigrant experience is a central feature of the stories of the patriarchs. They are all, in one way or another, uh, immigrants in their stories. Okay, now here, now Jacob is on his way back to the land of Canaan, and he uh, hears that his brother Esau is coming out to say hi to him with like 400 soldiers. Okay, so, uh, so this is a, a, a scary moment for Jacob. And so Jacob says, to, I don't really want to get into that story, um, but I, I want to bring this text. I love this. So uh, Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And Jacob instructed them as follows. Thus shall you say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. I stayed with Lavan and remained until now. But look at the Hebrew of that. This is what your servant Jacob says. I sojourned, I immigrated to Lavan's domain. And I lived there, I was delayed there until now. Okay, now here's what Rashi uh, picking up on a classical midrash says about this. I have sojourned. Okay, Garti. I lived with Levan. 
I had become neither a prince nor other person of importance, but merely a sojourner. In other words, I was just a, I was just a humble, I was just making a buck. You know, I, I had to, I became a shepherd. I, I, I worked for marrying somebody, right? I wanted to build a family and that's what I did when I was there. I wasn't some kind of like big hotshot. I didn't become some big hotshot there. I just lived there. It's not worth your while to hate me on account of the blessing of your father who blessed me, right? Be master over thy brethren for it has not been fulfilled in me, right? In other words, right? Dad said I was going to be this great guy, but look at me. I was just an immigrant for, for 20 plus years. Another explanation, this is what I really wanted to see. The word garti has the numerical value of 613, taryag. So you guys, uh, uh, most of you know probably that uh, Hebrew, in addition to being an alphabetical system, is also a numerical system. Um, and uh, the numerical value of the word garti is 613, which corresponds to number of commandments in the Torah. So here's what the Midrash interprets Jacob is saying here. Though I have sojourned with Lavan the wicked, I have observed the Taryag mitzvot, the 613 divine commandments, and I have learned not of his evil ways. So, okay, there's, there's a lot that we could unpack from that in a number of different contexts. For this context, what I want to point out is that Jacob is, or at least the understanding of what Jacob says here, is that Jacob says he not only sojourned with Lavan as an immigrant, but he resisted assimilation, right? In other words, you don't, you don't read that. All right, that's why you don't have to read it the way I read it, but he resisted assimilation, right? In other words, he didn't, he didn't become like Lavan and his family, the other people who lived there, okay? So I, I think that that's actually important because I think that often in our conversation about, uh, about immigration, in our context, people will say, well, immigration is fine so long as they assimilate, Right. Um, and so long as they become like us. Right. But insofar as we can't predict that they're going to be like us or uh, that, that they're not going to adopt our customs or we're worried about their loyalty or how, what laws they are going to follow, whatever. I just had a conversation with somebody before to that effect. Right. Um, that uh, that we shouldn't let people in. Right. And here, I think um, the tradition pushes back on that idea that there's not an inherent value of assimilating into the dominant culture. Right? Sometimes you have to do it in order to live, right? But Jacob actually wears it as a badge of honor. I didn't assimilate, right? And nevertheless, he was a sojourner. He was a gear. He was an immigrant. Um, I think that that's worth holding in, uh, in, in, the, in the back of our minds, that there's not an inherent value placed on assimilation. And in fact, there might be uh, an inherent value placed on not assimilating. By the way, we hear this all the time in the Jewish community, and it's it's... Especially funny when I hear it uh, uh, among conservative and reformed Jews about you know how terrible and rampant assimilation is uh, among among Jews in America, um, where you know we're wearing clothes from the Gap and you know we have, right we're speaking English right uh, obviously we've assimilated, um, but what we mean by that is uh, is losing uh, a sense of our. Uh, our, our distinctiveness, our distinct culture, right? Um, but the people who are really good about not assimilating, we, those of us in this room, uh, tend to not really want to be like or associate, right? So associate with so much. So like the ultra-Orthodox Jews who don't assimilate, right? Or, um, or um, Muslim Americans who, uh, who, uh, who resist aspects of assimilation or Latinos who continue speaking Spanish even when they're here, right? 
Now, we, from our perspective, say like, you know, it's, it's such a shame that they didn't assimilate, right? People should really assimilate. But the way we talk about assimilation, I think that actually we should be really understanding of why people resist that kind of assimilation, right? And here in our, in, in our tradition, there's a celebration of Jacob's lack of assimilation.